0: No 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 na na! It's the one and only Stedman History podcast! Yeah! We're back! It's another week! It's another moment, it's another time to sit back, relax, maybe grab a cold beverage and just sip it back while you listen to this podcast. This week I'm joined by the amazing theatre maker, director, writer, sometimes performer, divisor, Helena Middleton. We're going to be talking all about her company, The Wardrobe Ensemble, their first show Riot. We talk about education 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 the star seekers we're talking about kin we're talking about my mama a man we're talking it all it's a really inspiring amazing chat where we kind of dive into what it's like to collaborate with so many amazing individuals to be on stage with people that you call your family your friends and it's yeah, it's a really nice chat it's really fun there's some really really nice moments i think you're really really going to enjoy it what have i been doing this week What have I been up to? Well, if you listen to one of our older podcasts, you would have had the Christmas Drill Challenge where I spoke to Lakeisha Lynch-Stevens and we spoke about the Christmas Drill Challenge that we had. We've only gone and made a full album out of that 16 tracks later. We're here. It's called Last Train. You can listen to it right now on Spotify and Apple Music. And I mean, I didn't know that was going to be a thing that I would get to say in 2021. It's been a strange year, hasn't it? Last year was strange. This year is still strange. So yes, please, please, please check that out. If you want to follow Helena, you can follow her at HSSMiddleton on Twitter. You can also follow the Wardrobe Ensemble at Wardrobe Ensemble on Twitter. And you can also check out Helena's website, helenamiddleton.co.uk, where they'll have all information about how you can watch My Mama, A Man, which will hopefully premiere during Pride Festival. Oh, let's just get straight in to the podcast and remember if you enjoy this please tell your friends rate review subscribe all that amazing good stuff follow us on instagram at Steadman history we're going in here we go helena do you want to introduce yourself i'm helena i am a theater
1: maker um mainly a director sometimes i do some acting i do a lot of devising i do a lot of writing um but i'd say i'm predominantly a director and probably most known or um, people will be most familiar with my work that I make with my company called The Wardrobe Ensemble.
0: Cool. Very nice. What uh, what inspired you to get started within all of that?
1: Oh, it's a good question. I, I think I was very lucky because my uh, I remember being in reception and I wanted to be a window cleaner. Like That was the big dream. My nice. dad was going to hold the ladder and I would wash the windows and then... I stopped wanting to be a window cleaner. I wanted to be an actress. And that was literally probably from the age of like five or six. So I had from a very young age this idea of that that, that was what I wanted to do. So I did loads of um, you know, like after school clubs and uh, youth groups through Bristol. Um, And I always remember, like, it was a talent show in my primary school where I wrote and directed with me and my friend Katie Lee um, and starred in the play. And one of the teachers was like, that was actually really great. It was really funny. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so good at this. So I just wrote plays for all my friends. And I think I probably got bolstered by that through the years. Um, And then when I got older, I continued to do uh, youth groups and when I went to the Bristol Vic Young Company, which I joined when I was like 16 or 17. So I I guess I was kind of older. Yeah. um, I was pretty quickly noticed as, I guess, being someone who could step outside things. uh, And the teacher at the time then asked me to assist them on to direct a young company show. And it kind of went from there. And I always remember that when I started, I didn't know if I wanted to be an actress still, but I kind of lost my confidence as a performer. But when I got into my first week of university, I remember going like, oh, I know what I want to do now. I want to be a director. And I was like, oh crap, I've got to do three years of an English degree, but then made the most of my time there. So I guess, yeah, I've just been lucky that it's always been part of my life. It just seems to have gone alongside it, I guess.
0: Did you direct when you were at university at all?
1: Yeah, yeah, I directed loads because suddenly I was like, oh, this is a great playground to do work. Um, without high stakes, do you know what I mean? Like at the time, if the student newspaper wrote a bad review, it felt like the worst thing in the whole world. But the reality is, it's like a really safe space to experiment um, and to direct shows that it'd be hard to get a chance to do outside of that space. So I, I did. Um, I directed a View from the Bridge. I directed Frost Nixon. I directed a Lucy Kirkwood play. Called it felt empty um, when the heart went at first, but it's all right now, like which was like super experimental, like in this tiny room upstairs where we did it all so specific. And it was just a really good opportunity to like get hold of scripts and have a go. Um, and I'm really grateful for that time to grow as a director because it, as I said, it wasn't like in the light of the industry, it was just like, oh, me and people in Cambridge like making plays. So it was like, very very lucky in that respect
0: cool no that's really good yeah especially being able to do that and not be like under pressure or feel kind of exposed or anything like that did you then do the then went to do Made in Bristol
1: no so I did I basically um I had like a weird journey in that I applied for university in my first gap year and I'd always planned to have that year traveling it was just like part of the big plan so I went to Central America but in that year I applied to go to university and I got a deferred entry so it basically meant I had to go in two years or I had to go in a year's time if that makes sense but I was already on my gap year Um, and I remember it so clearly because at the time I was like oh no like my life isn't going to start like what am I going to do for that year and I don't know, felt quite overwhelming. But as I said, like I got a place at Cambridge at this mature college and it felt like, oh, I should probably do that. That feels like a something I should do in my life. But I, I at the time really wanted to go to Durham and was waiting on that. And then I didn't okay. get to Durham. And I was like, well, fuck it. I'm having another year, I'm going to Cambridge. Um, and whilst I was traveling, the first pilot year of Made in Bristol came up and they were asking for interest and I was interested. And so I did it the year before I went to university. And it totally changed the course of my whole life. And that's one of those like weird times where like, I don't know, I never would have predicted I would have got deferred entry to go to a mature college. Like what a weird <laughs> thing to happen. And yet this yes. is honestly, it's like, that's my whole life has changed because of that weird thing that happened. So um, yeah, so Made in Bristol was this one year training course that at the time when we did it, I mean, I have full of love for it. Cause as I said, it's kind of, it's my life now, but um, it was definitely a pilot year. Like there were, there was a few, you know, there was kinks along the road, but we made our company that year, so.
0: Yeah, and Riot was your first show?
1: Yeah, so we made our first show Riot and fundraised and took it up to Edinburgh. And cause it was the year of the London riots. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, it was like weird, we had this like, <laughs> weirdly zeitgeisty show because like the first is a classic you know unknown company at Edinburgh we had like two people then four people then 10 people and then we and then the riots broke and suddenly we were a show that um reviewers were interested in coming to and our uh, I always remember because we had a Facebook page called Riot in Edinburgh which was like our show page <laughs> and they took it down because it was inciting violence and we were like what wow it became this like icy thing reviews came in really early it got really good reviews and then suddenly it was selling out for the rest of the like the fringe so it was one of these again like serendipitous the, the world timing up with our play um but i think also riot had a kind of I, I don't know had an energy to it like this young company throwing everything they they could at it um we lit it all with ikea lamps and it was set in an ikea store um, based on a true story and all about consumerism, but based on like a B-movie type of aesthetic. Um, and we had so much fun making it. And I think it probably just was this little firecracker of a show in this tiny room in Edinburgh. And yeah, we really rode on the success of that show for quite a few years.
0: And then you did the 10 year anniversary last year, didn't you? Performing it in January at Bristol Old Vic. What was that like to revisit it after 10 years and after all the other things that you had done and all the other shows that you had created?
1: Yeah it's a good question. I think we were actually really nervous about putting it back on. A lot of us we were excited because there's uh, a lot of joy contained in that first show but I think we felt like our politics, our ideas, our style have evolved um, since making it and there was just a few things we were like oh can we say that now like actually 10 years is quite a long time like there's you know some of the gender politics in it are a bit shit and like <laughs> like now we'd be we'd really question it and really analyze it but actually we didn't spend that much time agonizing over those things when we were younger so when we put it back on we had this thing we're like oh does this represent how we what we think about these things and when we look bad but then the reality was we put it on and they went down really well and we really enjoyed performing it and actually those things aren't as weighted as we were anticipating um, I think people took it with the lightness of touch with which we approached it in the first place.
0: No, that I really liked it. That was, because I hadn't, I didn't see it at the time. I don't know where I was at the time. London was where I was. I don't know why I looked up my notes. It doesn't say that I was in London in 2010. That was my brain, but I was, uh, <laughs> I think your first show I saw was 1972, Future of Sex in yeah. 2015.
1: That was our third show. Our third big show is what we call it. Um, but it was quite a breakthrough show for us, I'd say, again, because that was our first actual Arts Council funded production. So with Riot and 33, both of them, we just back in scrabbled together to make it. And I always remember making 33 and we rehearsed for free in the scout hut in Bath, but I couldn't afford to get the train to rehearse there. And it was like this tragic day where I was like crying. Trying to get the money out to pay for a ticket to go home, um, and the, and there was an there was this amazing period of, with our for our company where half of us went to university, and the other half kept the company going basically because they toured those shows as I said with no budget and we were just scrabbling around making it work like all of us emailing different venues across the country being like please will you put our play on and and somehow it happened um, and so we were really grateful to those company members who put in that graft, like unpaid graft at the beginning, which basically meant when we graduated, the other half of us graduated, there was a foundation there. Wow. And it was when we graduated that we made 1972, got our Arts Council funding to make it and had a commission that was co-produced with Shoreditch Town Hall. So it was quite a big step up as a company. Um, and we have, I think quite, it holds quite a special place in our hearts that show. Um, so we'd grown up a bit, I guess.
0: And that's what started the relationship between Wardrobe Ensemble and uh, Shoreditch Town Hall.
1: Yeah, exactly. We did... um, They initially invited us for a two-week R&D, which is where we got our first bit of funding. Um, And we... Yeah, so we just were in their basements making this R&D of a show. And we did a showing at the end, and it just, again, went really well. Happened to, like, sing for a few people. And then they were up for co-producing it with us. And they've been a hugely important part of our development as a company, that investment from that building and support.
0: What draws you towards like uh, the love of devising and collaboration?
1: Mm. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a, I was thinking about this earlier, um, about like what being in devising theatre companies for like gifted me as a person. And I think part of it is like you have to be really unprecious about your art. And that doesn't mean ultimately you don't get precious about it, but it means in those first initial stages you have to be willing to make something that's bad because you just have to produce and produce and produce and produce. And it's watched by your peers and your friends, and then you'll go, Yeah, that was good. That was shit. Maybe that bit. Blah, blah, blah. And you become, I don't know, I, I'm not I'm not a nervous maker because I'm so happy to just be like yeah, I'll give it a go yeah, that you know what I mean and I can yeah. see I can take what's good from it and I'm really I uh, and I I know a lot of people have like done the artist's way or all the stuff in lockdown and so much of that's like unblocking these things that block you from creativity and I was like I'm really lucky that I don't feel that like I'm not scared by an empty page or by an empty stage or whatever I'm like I'm excited by that. And I love when you just sort of, you know, you push that little ball down the hill and you see it rolling and getting bigger and bigger. And these many voices feeding it in a positive way. I I, I think it's really special. And also like devising feels like weirdly radical uh, in response to standardized programming. You know, most theaters we know will have like your, your Shakespeare, your well-known playwright, some maybe smaller work in the studio but like to be pushing to make mid-scale device work feels unusual um and something we're quite proud of that we do
0: yeah because I suppose yeah you're right because I suppose mid-scale yeah it's different isn't it because sometimes it could be like smaller companies do it or yeah it's kind of more of like a small like small rather than a mid-scale kind of size companies
1: it's because you can take risks it's like in your studio you can have your your devised work by slightly unknown company. But people are fearful of taking that risk on their, mid, mid, you know, scale stages. But something like Complicite is a really useful inspiration because that's what they've been doing for however long. Um, and, you know, the, there are companies out there who are doing it. And we really, really love The Team, which is an American theatre company.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: we love, yeah, and, and kind of like want to be them a bit. Um, or maybe yeah their style of making feels like there's uh, it talks to the way that we make as well um but you know what i mean it's like i don't know why this is a platform in which you can tell new stories so why not tell new stories and if that story can be told by myriad voices why not like it's the better well it's a particular kind of uh, relationship we have with each other that means we can now make shows as a, as a nine-plus collective, which took a long time to establish. But, um, but I love that there's lots of different voices in it. I think it makes, means there's heat in the shows.
0: Yeah, I want to kind of go back to that. Did you know each other before Made in Bristol?
1: Some of us did. I think because we were the first group to do it, a lot of us had got, been to the young company, so some of us had been in shows together and some of us um, had been at school together, actually. Tom and Em are in the year below me at school. Um, and so there were, for a lot of us, there were like spidery connections, but we didn't hadn't worked together in that way before that year.
0: Okay, and how did the kind of the roles get established? Some people directing more, performing more, writing more. Is that just what you like you said about when you were younger like writing and directing and that was something you found you were really passionate about is that how that came about?
1: Yeah I guess within the ensemble we really recognize and celebrate each other's strengths and part of that is knowing when people are good at sitting outside of it and like or or really kind of uh, crafting the work. And that didn't happen straight away. So Tom Brennan directed Riot by himself and he directed 33 by himself. Oh no, Jesse was associate on it. But, the, but us kind of moving towards a model of co-directing emerged I think as um, the three of us, our interests really did start to shine towards being directors rather than necessarily as actors. Um, And that kind of just grew in our personal lives as much as anything else. But um, yeah, yeah, roles are an interesting one because, yeah, and now we tend to co-direct our shows and that's quite an important part of our process because we try and move towards a space that isn't necessarily hierarchical in the traditional sense that you have in a room, which is like, you know, director is king. um, And then everyone else listens to them. we really like are anti that in a way that means, um, a co-direction actually really helps because it's always a conversation then there's not yeah. like one person just deciding or and, and also that takes the pressure off that one person like I've definitely been in rehearsal rooms before where someone asked me a question and I'm going oh god oh god and you're <laughs> sort of like are like oh yeah this probably oh god whereas if you can go to the pub and be like okay right what the hell do we do with that scene like have a natter and then go back in like it's really oh my god so nice and and again I think it takes Time to establish those relationships, but it's so nice having a partner in crime when you're in that position. Um, I'm not sure if that answered the question necessarily. I think it was just slightly organic, basically.
0: Yeah, that makes yeah that makes sense. I want to talk about witness for the prosecution, and was that your first time like assistant directing?
1: No, I'd assisted. Um, I again, I'd assisted at university because they had a few opportunities where their professional directors directed shows. And um, you'd assist a professional director. So I'd, I assisted Michael Fentiman. Um, oh,
0: yeah.
1: And Helen Eastman. And I actually assisted Michael twice. And so I'd, I actually managed to get a bit of assisting experience in when I was at university, which is getting really lucky. But I guess Witness was my first, is this right? I can't remember anymore, was my first assisting job outside of education. Like, I didn't get paid for those other jobs. Okay. <laughs> I was very much, um, you know, there for the experience, uh, but which I managed to wangle somehow because I was doing my degree and then, you know, sneak sneak along to rehearsal. But, um, but yes.
0: And how did you find that? What were some of the highlights or challenges?
1: Uh, all challenges. Well, I really loved Lucy Bailey, um, who directed it. And so that was quite... Inspiring to work with a director who I, whose work I'd seen, whose work I loved. I didn't have any connection with her. I just emailed her and was like, "I really love you. Please, can I go for a coffee?" And then we went for a coffee, and I was like, "I don't know." I basically got some really good advice from a director I love called Miranda Cromwell, who just said, "Like, who do you want to work with? Contact them." And I did, and and basically that's what came out of it. Lucy was like, "Oh, I think you'd find this job really interesting," and I was like, "Great." Um, and I guess in the process of I don't know there there were some challenges with that show in that like maybe it wasn't necessarily the show I would want to make as a as a theater maker myself like it is an Agatha Christie kind of fairly traditional casting like fairly traditional uh setup beyond the fact that it's like specific um which was very cool um but it was really great to work with many professional actors and and to see a director at work, basically.
0: Yeah, it's, it is very traditional, but the site-specific stuff is is um, it's kind of different. I want to talk about films as well. Yeah. And kind of moving into uh, like short films and kin. Mm-hmm. How, did, how did that come about?
1: It came from a connection I made with a friend at university who was like, he saw my plays, he loved my plays. He was like, we should make a film. And he wanted to be a film producer. And then when we graduated, he was like, let's find a script and do it. Um, <laughs> and they think we were like, okay, yes. And I knew Sam Bailey um, from Bristol, Lovett Young Company. And I was like, do you have a film? And he's like, yeah, I do have a film, which was Kin. I read the script and I remember very, my very, very initial response was like, oh, it's about two brothers in the care system. Like, am I the right person to tell that story? Like, I don't, I don't know, like what kind of films do I wanna make? And then I remember talking to Tim about it and he's like, you're kind of exactly the right person to tell that story because you're kind of boxing yourself into an idea of who should tell that by just having that response anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, why shouldn't I tell a story about two two young men? Cool, like so I so then yeah we decided to kind of grab that and run with it and um, to be honest I look back on it and I'm like we were like ballsy because we just emailed loads of people and were like can we meet you and talk about this film and we ended up pitching it in a pitching competition um at a film festival and getting really good feedback on it and then pitching it for uh I Shorts, which was a funding program at the time and when we basically didn't get it but we had the best rejection email you'd ever have read in your life which was I- like It just like really goes to show why where people care is so lovely to write these things because they were like, you were like, they're really passionate about what we pitch. They're really passionate about us as a team. But basically, neither of us had a film to our name. And they were like, it just in the end, like we couldn't quite invest in you because we didn't we didn't have that proof. So then I think we were like, oh, a bit downhearted, didn't know if we were going to do it. And then we I met Jack Offord. I think we were at um, Love Saves the Day or something. We are just chatting about film. And I was like, oh, this film. Like He's like, just do it. Just make it. I was like, what? So like, just go out, you know, just do it. And then I was like, okay. And so Jack <laughs> came on. And then again, we just suddenly decided to make this film. Um, and because, credit to Tim, who now works with Jim Henson Company, and is like going from wow. strength to strength and just, doing amazing things he pushed it to be something way bigger than I think we possibly could have imagined and so as like a first directing experience it was an incredible one because I had like a full team I had a full film set I had some brilliant actors I um and I learned loads uh and I loved the days we were filming was, I was on a high the whole time and um, struggled a little bit with some of the stuff around it almost took took us almost two years I think to actually like finish the damn thing
0: <laughs> okay is that just because of like editing and all th- stuff like that or
1: basically there was no money so yeah we and we kept our like what we did is we just spoke to people who were really big in their field and we're like will you do it like uh, And loads of people, to be fair to them, were so up for handing the ladder down and being like, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is, you know, normally I edit commercials or normally I do this, like I'm up for it. But it's like in the weekends or it's it's in the spare in people's spare time, which makes so much sense. But it just meant like it dragged out. And then we realized after we did our first cut, it like lacked a bit of uh, the beginning needed more heart. So we did like reshoots and then we like got to a point with the edit where we were like oh it's probably too long and then another editor came on it just it just was one of those um I learned a lot like a lot a lot so again I wouldn't change it but Kitten the yeah then had like relative successor on the um short film circuit festival circuit uh which was really cool like got to go to Palm Springs.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. What was that like? What was that like going out there with the with the film?
1: Oh, it was very cool. It was very cool. It was inc- just a really hot place. That was my <laughs> main takeaway. We, like, tried to cook an egg on a car. Because <laughs> it was honestly, like, walking around in an oven on the inside. I've, I've been to loads of hot places, but this was, like, next level. But that's not the point. Met loads of great filmmakers. <laughs> like, and they they did like the party thing really well. So you'd like watch all your films in the day and then at night there'd be there was, like a great like LGBTQI plus party, great pool party. Like it was all about the kind of atmosphere of socialising as well. So I I mean, again, reflecting on it a bit because I have a film on the Festival circuit at the moment, which has just had such a different life because of COVID. Um, And I was like slightly mourning that, those lost experiences, I guess, that come from following your film around the world, basically, um, which I'm really lucky to have done.
0: Yeah, I want to, uh, um, yeah, I guess it is very different now because you're not able to go out and do those things. I wanted to talk about that, your next film, well, your current so, film.
1: So, yeah, the film will be, out, will be released quite soon, I hope. It's called My Mum or a Man, and it is about my mum. And the drag king community. So my mum basically wanted to experience the day as a man, and so the film follows like her experiencing it um, with the help of some drag kings, and it was like a super personal film um, that I'm really proud of having made, um, particularly as like a nod to my relationship with my mum. Uh, you know, whatever happens with this film, like. Me and my mum have that thing, and I think that's really wonderful. And she was so uh, so brave and honest and raw and fun and all of it, which just made it really elevated the film basically. And I'm yeah super grateful to her for that.
0: Yeah, I've, I saw the trailer and it looks amazing. It looks really good. Um, what was yeah, what was it like? So it's over just a day, did, like the the filming of your mum going out.
1: Yeah, it was, it was two days in the end. So it was, we did kind of a pre-interview about where that desire came from because basically my mum when she was younger uh, was a, I guess what she described as a tomboy. Um, but more than that, and this is why it piqued my interest, she'd like describe, she'd be like, oh, when I was a boy. And there's a song called When I Was a Boy and that she really related to. And so she really associated that time with being a diff- like a gender a different gender and I was like oh that's interesting that's not just like I was a girl who was a tomboy that's like I was desperate to be a boy and actually when she left childhood and like her body changed and she changed there's like a huge mourning for losing whatever that thing was that made her feel like a boy um, and I guess whilst there's those are conversations on going on at the moment about gender and trans rights and what it means to be a person (laughs) at all. I thought that's something I haven't heard. Like what does a 60 year old have to say about that? Because a lot has changed in a short time. And I feel like our generation, you know, thirties and younger are a little bit more comfortable or accepting of genders all all across the spectrum. Whereas there might be a bit confusion or fear with a slightly older generation, Mm. fear because they might get it wrong. fear because they don't understand um and I suppose I saw this thing here with my mum going like oh so you're associating certain things with being a boy like you (laughs) so what does that mean like why were you you a boy oh I ran around and I I hit bees nests okay but but why were you a boy well because boys could do that like boys have freedom like boys could and again I'm like but why why are you a boy though like why can't you be a girl who does and 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 I just found it, it sits in a place that was really interesting to me that she had these feelings uh, and was willing to go for this exploration of her gender at the age of 60 and kind of had this, uh, I, I won't say how it ends, but she just has this beautiful realisation at the end about that gender identity. And yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm re- we're releasing it, I think probably for Pride this year, around Pride time. Okay. I hope people enjoy it, uh, but it is one of those ones that's very close to the heart. So now I'm very protective of my mum, obviously, as well. So I hope it gets received with that kind of warmth with which we made it. It was kind of meant to be a celebration, you know. What I mean,
0: that's good. Yeah, Magic X is very touching, very close. So I suppose kind of letting it out. Have people have people seen it? Because it was part of the BFI Flare Festival last year, but I assume that didn't go ahead. Or
1: it went online um so that was like the first casualty for me of Covid. I remember like it was it was the weekend like upcoming weekend I think they cancelled it on the Wednesday or something in the end um which is a real shame because that festival in person went to be brilliant but yeah so that went online and it's done various festivals over the past year online um which is great and in many ways it might have improved its reach like you know it played in India, it's played in Australia, played in America um, various festivals across the uk so people have seen it and and friends and you know people i've shared it with have responded really positively to it and there's nothing quite like just putting it out into the the general public though i think
0: (laughs) yeah i suppose that's a bit (laughs) kind of a little bit different and um yeah, yeah in how they'll sort of respond and yeah but i'm sure i'm sure it'll be very positive i wanted to talk about uh pippi longstocking yes because that was you co-directed that with jesse didn't you
1: yeah jesse Jones. yeah
0: was that um because that wasn't a wardrobe ensemble show Mm -hmm. did you kind of was the approach very similar or was it different in the way that you kind of approached it and also to touch back on film stuff as well was that do you have a different approach to that as well
1: a different
0: approach to... To uh, directing. I suppose maybe if you talk about film, first of all, yeah, when you did Kin, was that different? Did you have a different yeah. way of... Because I suppose it's, yeah, it's a very different kind of medium, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, again, I, I was... I was really worried about it because I was like, I've never done a film. And I remember again, like speaking to a film director and I spoke to them, and I said, I'm a theater director, I've never done a film, how can I do this? And he was like, you're a theater director, you're like miles ahead of the rest of us. (laughs) Most of us just know, like, you know, I think film directors tend to fall in two camps. One's uh, theater directors who are transitioning or or people who are personable and look for human stories or they're like, I love cameras, I love image, techie. Oh my God, there's people like and good thing they're good at acting because I don't know how I'd speak to them so I think basically having a theatre director's background meant like I could have that personable thing and actually then just trust my DOP to worry about the picture you know obviously I'm I'm part of that conversation as well but I like just kind of going like oh you're, you the camera team are amazing that looks great okay actors but there is a big difference which is time and you get so much time in rehearsals as a theatre maker. I mean, it always feels rushed, but you do, you have weeks to sit with your, to be with your actors, to be making, to say, you know, have a overnight sleep where <laughs> you think about a note, whatever it is. Whereas with Kin, because we worked with, I worked with a few, I guess, like higher profile actors. Um, and so their agents were like, you can't have a rehearsal and you're like, okay, um, which is so weird. Yeah. All- you'd have to pay more to do it. And obviously we're doing it on a budget. So I remember meeting like Sinetra Sarka, who's, who's in casualty for like a coffee at the watershed, being like, so we're not rehearsing, but what do you think about this bit of the scene? And we just had a chat. And I like, basically we just had a bunch of chats like that with, actors because they're keen to talk about it as well that's what's strange about it there's this weird like protection around their time which you know is the point of an agent but also you're going like oh no everyone wants it to be good so you know sparing an hour to talk through beats of a scene is good but when you're on set suddenly it's like oh the lighting takes ages the camera takes ages the like the smoke machine needs to do this there's a there's a drone flying past, like the sound's getting ready. And then suddenly it's all good. And you're like, okay, actors, go. And then and, it's like, and then the first AD is like, oh no, we need to crack on. And you're like, oh, oh and I like run in and give a note. Like, oh, could you just try this? Okay, bye. And then you run back out. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I was like, this is insane. It basically made that old adage where you're like, casting is everything it rings so true. Like I okay. just had to be like, I've cast the right people who are really good at their jobs because you don't have the time to build and nurture a performance in the same way. And so, yeah, that's definitely true of that kind of directing. And then as for Pippi, so Pippi was a musical, which is very fun. I actually, funnily enough, was speaking, Emily May, who played Pippi, who's absolutely wonderful, um, recorded for our podcast this morning. And uh, it was nice to be reminded of how amazing she is. Uh, yeah so Jesse and I have uh, brought that kind of style I guess with us from the devising room we did R&Ds which meant there was a kind of devised nature to them but we had a writer in the room so that's Mike Akers and I guess Mike being credited as writer ultimately made it a different kind of a different kind of process because we write our shows collectively which we weren't doing with Pippi and because it was an adaptation there was a lot of we had to be true to the original text. So we needed someone to be really focusing on that. But there was many elements which was like, hello actors today, we need to like think up a zany way that Pippi can do this, like let's have a play. So there's a lot of that in our rooms, we'll still play. Um, I don't think that would change no matter what we were doing, to be honest.
0: That's good, yeah. Yeah, I guess like it's kind of the core sort of beliefs and core like ways of working of the same. It's just kind of the project and bits like that uh, change. What was it like doing education, education, education at Trafalgar Studios?
1: Yeah, that was another kind of insane moment in our lives. At the Wardrobe Ensemble, we obviously strategize a lot and we think about things <laughs> in our future and we make loads of plans. And And Hannah Smith, who's our producer, is absolutely brilliant. And, and there's a lot of us talking about where we want to be. But things like Trafalgar Studios is an c- absolutely classic case of something being asked of us last minute and us going okay yes and you know obviously the dream is like yeah we could take a show to the west end great like you can joke about that but the reality was um Trago studio had an opening they had a slot a summer slot that I think we I can't remember like a show dropped out or something I can't remember but then they were like someone do we want it and so this was us just going like, ah do we can we and we all had other what we were making another show like it's absolutely okay like we're making Last of the pelican daughters we're doing loads of other stuff some of i was away like in the run-up like we did some of the rehearsals months in advance to make it work but i think we were just like we just gotta do it um and so jesse so i did the re-rehearsals and then jesse led on in the getting to um to trafalgar so i had this quite strange experience of arriving on press night sort of feeling this weird disconnect slightly from the experience but seeing fucking like glitzy posters about and it was quite overwhelming I would say and I think I think everyone would agree with that it's like quite an overwhelming experience but I think yeah because I directed it in a slightly bitty way I didn't necessarily feel totally part of the ride of it I guess which happens sometimes.
0: Yeah, do things feel less overwhelming because there are more of you involved?
1: (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I guess it means you can turn to your mate and go like, this is overwhelming, isn't it? Um, Which is always nice. I always remember this, like one of my most crystallised memories is um, we took Riot to to America the summer after we made it. Because again, someone saw Riot from a, fest- a festival in Massachusetts. They saw it in Edinburgh that first year and they invited us to America. And again, we were like, should we do it? Okay, blah. And I remember I- I'd-, I'd been working at IKEA at the time and um, I was on like a zero, oh, no, I wasn't on a zero-hundred contract or something, but they I hadn't worked there for ages because I was at university and then they ended up having to give me loads of holiday pay. And then I oh. used that holiday pay to pay for the flight so I could go to America and like defame their name. across <laughs> <for> America. <Okay. laughs> But it was us, again, it was just us being kids, being like, can we fucking afford a flight? And we used to have, we put out a hat at the end of the performance to like raise money. But anyway, we um, we were performing in Massachusetts and then we got this message or call saying like, can you do this one night in New York? And, you know, when, for whatever reason, this thing had been in my head since I was young, which is like, New York is like magic. New York is, is the dream in every single way. Yeah. I had this romance surrounding it. And we just were like, yeah, okay, fuck it again. Went to New York for one night and we performed it again in this basement theater. And I think the amp broke and everything went kind of wrong, but we were just like, okay, the amp's broken. We'll just make the noises with our mouths, like we'll do whatever it is. And we'd met these Americans and they had a, an apartment up the road. And afterwards they were like, come up to the roof. <laughs> and we sat on the roof there's apartment looking across the, like the New York Vista and we had pizza and I remember turning to Kerry and Kerry just started crying and then I just started crying and we were like we're just over- overwhelmed at what we you know we felt like kids <laughs> who had just managed to do this crazy thing and I guess that was really special to be able to share that with your friends like you know that company are my my family and my friends and life has gifted me a whole other group of people who I care about so much and I just I'm really grateful for that.
0: Yeah that's that's amazing because I think I like I've seen companies and everything like perform work together but I don't think I've ever really thought about like that bond and that like friendship and connection until like last year when I saw Shit Actually by Shit Theatre. Yeah. And then I was like, they get to perform like together as best friends, like forever. Yeah. That's like looking at your friends that you have like outside of the industry and being like, oh, it's great when we share time together. But imagine doing that like all the time and making stuff and being together and being like, you're always going to be there and friends are always going to be around. And yeah, that's really magical. And so uh, Star Seekers went from the wardrobe all the way to the National Theatre.
1: Yes. <laughs> That's another oh. story of the, is this the funny thing, isn't it? Every story is the same, which is like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> like, I just think we just say yes to shit and somehow we end up in madder places. Um, I, you know, and again, I, do, I don't want that to like knock any kind of sense of professionalism and like strategy. But again, the fucking Star Seekers was like, just graduated. The wardrobe fit had a 500 pound commission that they got from the Bristol City Council. And they were like, does anyone want to make a kid show? And then Jesse Meadows was like, anyone in the order of someone want to make a kid show? And me and Jesse and Ben were free. And we were like, well, we need someone to do the music. So we asked Jack Jury on board. And we made a show for 500 quid with like a strong ethos about what kids theater should be. But again, Jesse had been in a few kids shows, but for the most part, like we hadn't made work <laughs> for that age group, but we were like, Oh, we want to make something really truly interactive that really like listens to the kids ideas and incorporates them in the show. And that's kind of what we set out to do. And so we made the star seekers. And again, it's just a lovely little poppy show that kids really responded well to. And we taught that for years, you know, in, to various places. Um, usually just on the weekend or in a in half term and then when we took education to Edinburgh we were like oh maybe this is time to give store seekers it's it's go it's go (laughs) at Edinburgh because we could because you know relatively cheaply because we were already taking a show there we did it in Pleasance as well which meant like it was a better deal and honestly no one came (laughs) (laughs) Like, no one came. Like, some people came and had a really lovely time. There was this girl who came three days in a row. (laughs) And, like, those are the ones that lift your heart. But we were performing, like, in the morning, like, absolutely exhausted. And, but, some people, the people who did come, was Lynn Gardner came and gave a lovely review. And also some people from the National Theatre. And they were like, oh, this is, I like this. And they fucking programmed it. So... You know, again, it's like the show was there. The show is good. They could see its potential, and then they were in, they were there at the right time. And so, yeah, I really, really, really remember that call because I was in the national. I was in the national either having watched a show or meeting someone for a coffee, and I and we performed right in the shed years before. And I was like, oh, it'd be nice to perform here again, wouldn't it? That'd be lovely. And I remember Jesse ringing me, going like, Helena, are you, are you sitting down? And I was like, oh, yeah. And he was like, they want a programme Star Seekers. And I went, what? <laughs> they want to bring Star Seekers? Because we all thought, oh, maybe education, maybe. But yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, we kind of like, you know, made it look a little less shabby because we'd been on the on the road for a while. We used to like clean it up and we took it to the Dorfman for a month. And literally one of the highlights of my life, like it was so joyful again, because it's like me and my friends are at the National running about in the hallways, just doing this kid show, which is all about joy, basically. It was just really, really nice.
0: Yeah. What, what was it? Yeah, that must have been so, so good. What was it like being there and doing the show and seeing... Yeah, what was it like?
1: Yeah, it was, it was insane. It was all insane. It was was wonderful because A, the National just have so many people who look after you and that was lovely because we've been in all kinds of positions as a company, many of which involved us doing a lot of our own laundry. (laughs) which is <laughs> like standard It's just like yeah you just do it all everyone pitches in but then suddenly there's like three laundry people who will like separately wash every item of clothing and like in Star Seekers you have to we make these asteroids that the kids throw which is made of newspaper which usually is just me and probably one of the actors like scrabbling around before the show making and again I had like five helpers and there's this like amazing resources in that space but I guess it just... I don't know again it felt like a bit like a show which didn't necessarily sit in with the idea of a show you might expect to see there and I really like that I, I really remember the first show we did where the kids went insane like proper anarchy they really <laughs> the actors had to work really hard because we hadn't quite established the boundaries between the the floor and the stage which is just something you need to do oh, yeah. <laughs> and they honestly just like <laughs> ran onto the stage. I remember Jesse like looking up to me in the tack box kind of being like help <laughs> and then was managed to rein it in and then you know we, we tweaked it and sort of sorted it out but I guess it was just nice because we could just do our play there and have the support of an amazing building and go to the bar and look at famous people and oh, like, yeah, like legit. <laughs>
0: That, yeah, that must be really, yeah, really, really cool. How has the pandemic affected the company?
1: Well, so, I mean, if you would asked me a year ago, or not quite a year ago, but it was really scary at the beginning because we were about, we were a week, I think, into a national tour of the Pelican Daughters, which had meant literally that we'd spent all the money and we had none of the income. And so there was a really scary first month where I was just like... Are we going to be bankrupt? What the hell do we do? We've got actors who we need to pay. Like, it's really stressful and quite overwhelming. Again, for a company that has just kind of grown out of who we are, like, I'm fucking treasurer, and I... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I find it so overwhelming. But because it's like, we literally gave ourselves these roles ten years ago, and that's what we've done ever since. But... um, So it was really overwhelming. Cancelled a lot of shows, but actually we fundraised a bit of money which meant we could pay all the um all the creatives who we had well you know pay something towards the cost of the cancellation um and then got uh the emergency funding and so so in that respect have ended up in an okay position and i suppose we took a bit of time to reflect on ourselves as a company and where we're at and some like interpersonal stuff and we did some coaching and some strategizing some just being together making stuff without pressure we've done a bunch of R&Ds and we've started making podcasts Um, and I guess now we're kind of just prepping for when we're allowed to come out and I actually think we're in quite a you know, the time has, time has let us uh, do things that we never had time for before, which has been really useful in many ways, because we were on a pretty, we were on a train and it was going, like going, and it was going pretty fast, and so actually being forced to stop and reflect on some stuff has been helpful, and allowed us to kind of, mm, I guess, solidify the pillars of our company, and discuss what our ethos is, and how we might move forward in, with actual dedicated time. So that's been positive, along with the stuff that's been challenging, which is not working for a really long time and trying to decide whether that's, <laughs> whether you should still be a freelancer through this year when jobs are scarce and, and some people have decided not to do that and some people have done that. And I think actually it will all be all right in the end, but um, it means people are in slightly different positions, I guess.
0: Yeah, has kind of been that sort of, yeah, thinking about what it's like to be freelance and all that sort of stuff. The Great Gatsby streaming, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think from the beginning of March. Yeah, so that was, (laughs) that was mad. I think we were just like, God, make a play. I really want to make a play. (laughs) (laughs) And so Tom and Jessie Meadows were kind of, I guess, leading on that because Tom directed it and Jessie was in it. And we worked with Tamsin, who's amazing Bristol based actress and uh yeah a couple of us kind of worked in it's like outside eyes because we kind of wanted to do something and give an offering and to celebrate again so officially this is our 10th year if that makes sense because we did right after 10 years uh for the made in bristol program but we kind of count our birthday from 10 in fact this saturday is our 10th birthday (laughs) nice (laughs) yeah so we're having a little party so yeah so part of the celebrations this year was to collaborate with the Audrey theatre because it's also their 10th year and to release this and hopefully people will enjoy it they did the, they did a really really good job
0: because it was supposed to play wasn't it when there was that sort of tier system sort of mm. stage
1: yeah so yeah, the tier system stage oh gosh quite the roller coaster but yes yeah, okay. so it was men the be on from like January to March I think and then uh, I guess we'd always plan on filming it because you're we always like well who knows what's gonna happen and so we filmed it in January and now we'll release it on film but hopefully it will also go on live later in the year when when it's allowed.
0: That's good do you have a do you have a favorite show that you have made?
1: Uh, yes I do actually. I think it's Eloise and the Curse of the Golden Whisk. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I don't. It's funny when shows just. I just really love that show. It has a very. So this was one of the family shows that we made for the Bike Shed in Exeter. We made three Christmas shows, uh, in consecutive years, and they had this kind of like it's meant to be for all ages, which I, I personally love making work for, for that audience because it has this like Pixar esque. Um, narrative, which I always really love, where you're appealing to the adults in terms of humour and storyline, but have a kind of silliness and a lightness which will appeal to kids, which I guess is exactly where I like to <laughs> make me making theatre. I'm I'm quite big in our company on like. Uh, on story structure and how you interrogate that. And particularly because we write as a collective is like making sure that that work is done. And I guess Eloise has a really satisfying story arc in there. it's very much like a quest story. And I really enjoy that. And it has this like big characters, a love story in it. Those are great, really good songs. And I bloody loved and everyone was great in it. And yeah, I love that show.
0: I think that's everything.
1: That's my whole life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's everything I've got written down. I think.
1: No, no. Yeah. No, that's that.
0: Did you, did you want to share any more, any more wisdom?
1: Um, I don't know if I have any more wisdom to share. (laughs) I guess maybe, maybe it's just going back to the whole artist way and the barriers that are in front of people and, uh, encourage people to try and, not worry too much and just make make art it's really great it's what a lovely way to live
0: I've I've got a copy of the artist way um that I bought in December and I'm gonna I'm gonna get into it but (laughs) I started doing the morning pages and yeah it was yeah it helped it helped but it's quite
1: that's the thing like it's great this is the, because I don't, I'm not going to knock it at all. It's like, please, like everyone go do the others way. But there's a part of me that's just like, I, I just think go and write the thing you want to write, or go and sing the song you want to sing, or go and paint the painting you want to do. Because, yeah, there are barriers, but sometimes you just got to be like, it's going to be all right. And I think people are scared. And I think I, this is probably a lot of the work she does about the critic in your head and the critic in your head is probably the worst critic of all um, and you imagine that audience member being like, why have you put this piece of shit into the world? But the reality is, it's like, art isn't for that critic. Art is for like, I don't know. Art's just for the joy of making it, I think. Um, and for the people who get loads from it. And that, you know, as I was saying about this kid who came three times in a row to see Starseekers, like, and I, I, we're getting a little bit of that with the podcast we're making is like that's why i do it because nora listens to it every night or like <laughs> you know i just there's always someone who's gonna receive that and and love it and nurture it and care about it so just go do it in it
0: it was uh yeah it was really cool speaking to you
1: thanks alex bye Bye.
0: am in i can only get better it can only get better huh, if we see it through